at some point human beings just have to resist you know and the resistance unfortunately may not necessarily break the cycle of violence this program is brought to you by haymarket books as part of our live event series Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, welcome. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Our event today is called Stories of Survival, Surviving the Post-9-11 Human Rights Crises and Reclaiming Rights for All. This event is part three of a four-part series that the Center for Constitutional Rights is organizing this fall, together with Haymarket Books and our partners, entitled just resistance, 20 years of global struggle against the post 9-11 human rights crises. We are so honored today to hear from three amazing panelists who are survivors or work with survivors of the U.S. government's so-called war on terror, who have resisted the U.S. campaign of human rights abuses and the global export of the discriminatory terrorism framework that reinforces so much of our existing system of oppression. So to get started, it would be amazing if each panelist could take maybe two or three minutes to introduce themselves and also to tell us what brings you to this conversation. I'll start with Marie. Uh, hi everyone, good morning. Uh, it's evening where I am. Um, I'm in Mombasa, Kenya, and my name is Marie Ramtu. I'm the executive director at Muslims for Human Rights. And um, uh, what brings me to this conversation? So, we I'm born and raised uh, in Mombasa, which is a coastal town in Kenya, which is predominantly Muslim, and uh, Muguri has been uh, operating since 1997. And what brings me into this conversation particularly is just to amplify the voices because I live in a community which has been most affected uh, in Kenya with the terrorism operations. And because of the fear to speak out or even just to express the experiences that the people who have been directly affected go through. So I hope today to be able to amplify that those voices, to be the voice for the voiceless. Wonderful. Thank you, Marie. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing. Um, I'll pass it to Gazelle. Hi everyone, I'm so honored to be on this panel with such dedicated activists. My name is Gazelle Samizai and I'm a multimedia artist. And I primarily use lens-based media because this is the same medium used by the press to tell stories about Afghanistan and other um, places in the world. And particularly post 9-11, I noticed 
a deepening of um, xenophobia towards Muslims. And I was tired of seeing the same tired images of Afghanistan. For example, the the um, reels of Osama bin Laden's training camps and all these images that really depicted Afghans as barbarians. Um, and so my in my work, I really try to connect people through intimate visual stories um, and to provide a counter depiction of Afghanistan. Um, I'm also a member of the Afghan American Artists and Writers Association, or AWA, and we're a collective of academics, artists, writers, and activists um, who really work on programming to push back on mainstream discourses of Afghanistan, particularly in the U.S. And um, as of late, we've also been assisting Afghan artists in Afghanistan um, as they try to flee the country. Wow, that's so amazing. And it's so important to have an artist's perspective um, when talking about this work of resistance. Thank you, Gazelle. I'll pass it to Naveed. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Naveed uh, Shinvari, and um, I, I've been here in the U.S. since I was a teenager. Uh, my dad brought us here from Afghanistan in uh, 1998. Um, my life here is just been normal since at least after 9-11, just like everyone else's. And, uh, since then, obviously I've been one of those people that have been affected by, um, these, uh, some of these repressive policies of the West, especially in America. Uh, I'm one of the plaintiffs in the case, uh, Tenvir versus, versus Tenzin. Um, uh, for uh, being on a no-fly list and certain other lists uh, because they refused to spy on uh, the Muslim community um, when I was offered uh, these um, these things several times. Uh, so I look forward to speaking to everyone. Thank you so much, Naveed. And thank you all for those thoughtful introductions that brought up so much of what we plan to discuss today. And I really hope that it can be a discussion today. I have some questions um, really to just help us, you know, guide our level. Um, as an artist, how might you begin to reflect on the post 9-11 human rights crises? And yeah, feel free to share whatever you would like with us. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think there are several levels of impact. Um, obviously, the impact in Afghanistan, I think Brown University estimated that since 9-11, there's been like 240,000 Afghans who have died and 70,000 of those are civilians. Um, and in addition to that, the CIA has trained um, paramilitary groups that have done like extrajudicial killings. And I think the impact of that is going to resonate for quite some time. Um, and in the U.S., you know, we have an increase of surveillance um, and a reduction of civil liberties due to the Patriot Acts. Uh, increase in xenophobia, hate crimes against Muslims, the Muslim ban. So it's just 
it's a lot to digest, I guess. It's it seems like things have just kind of been snowballing and I think that there have been groups who have made some progress to push back, but at the same time it just seems like things are becoming more and more conservative. Um as an artist, um I think that sometimes people look to me as like some kind of representative of Afghanistan or of Afghan women and which I can't be. And also I, you know, I was born there, but I grew up here. So I don't try to act like I can speak to the lived experience of Afghans in Afghanistan right now. So I try to really speak from a personal space about the impacts of of being bicultural or on a larger systemic level, the impacts of U.S. policy um, on on different marginalized groups from like the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II to um, continuing incarceration of people of color and and the military industrial complex. Yeah, there's so much there, right? Like the ways in which all of these things are interconnected and the the ways that the marginalization has just continued to increase for everyone. Thank you so much for that. Um, very, you know, similar topic, but uh, I really wanted to focus on the Freedom of Information Act request that we filed together, um, Center for Constitutional Rights and Mahuri. Um, with the New York University School of Law Global Justice Clinic that's really requesting information from the CIA, the Department of Defense, and other federal agencies um, regarding the U.S. involvement in extrajudicial executions and disappearances of civilians um, in Kenya. And so I guess my question for you is really, as we work to shed light on the disappearances and killings of Muslims in Kenya, what does this really tell us? about the impact of the so-called war on terror in Kenya and throughout the African continent. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Um, I think that just, um, you know, when Gazelle was talking, she kind of also triggered, uh, you know, the conversation around uh, surveillance. And, and that has also, there has also been an increased surveillance since post-11, uh, post-September 11th, uh, and um, also increased sectorization and militarization. We have seen that the Kenyan budget on military aid, which uh, most of it comes from the US, has increased over time. Um, and also uh, just around humanitarianism and uh, refugees, I mean, because of the proximity that Kenya has with Somalia, and given the conflict that happens in Somalia, so we have majority of the refugees uh, in Kenya who are in the refugee camps up from Somalia. And at one point, the government actually had wanted to have the camps shut down uh, as a security measure. So you find that even in terms of just, um, I mean, the government is not hesitant to just defy international refugee law and just say, let us just shut down these camps. You know, uh, in as much as they have ratified the International Refugee Law Treaty, the 1951 Convention and the its Protocol, um, and also we just see like an, um, the retaliation attacks uh, when Kenya went into Somalia, 
first as a country, it was called like Linda into operation, which means uh, like protect the country. And then under the larger banner of the army, so much with uh, collaboration of several African countries. So, and there has been some school of thought that perhaps maybe if we stopped uh, supporting this proxy war uh, between Kenya and, uh, I mean, between Somalia and the US, perhaps maybe the retaliation attacks uh, that we face um, in our territory might um, might reduce. Uh, we don't know, or maybe not have occurred in the first place. So there has just overall just been a disregard of rule of law. Uh, we see that um, suspects of terrorism uh, are just extrajudicially killed. Uh, there's no right to fair trial, uh, they disappeared. Um, and we've seen that even our work has been affected. Uh, in, um, we had our accounts frozen under the pretext of we are supporting terrorists. Um, and even with that, the government is trying to pass a bill called Porter, Prevention of Terrorists Act which basically just organizations like us who are agitating around um, extraordinary renditions, we have to like report to governments before we are able to serve the communities that we work with. Yeah, so those are some of like the key direct impacts. Um, I can say um, that, yeah, I can peek out right now, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Marie. And, you know, something I really pulled out is just how, you know, the system is really pushing forward, allowing governments to target marginalized communities without any um, sort of consequence or recourse. Um, so, Navid, you also have such a personal story challenging the injustices of post-9-11 laws and policies. Can you share a bit more about the broader impact on you, your family, and your larger community? Uh, so just just to reiterate again, uh, I am uh, no special than the thousands and hundreds of thousands of Muslims that have been targeted uh, since 9-11 uh, and, and uh, uh, that, you know, that have had a, a huge impact on their families and their livelihood and um, on their records, especially. Um, my story is similar to you know other people, maybe even less than them. Uh, this is a very common practice in America now that uh, you know Muslims, uh, even if you if something happens in your normal life or so, FBI visits you and they will you know likely offer you something or they, sometimes it's it's uh, normally done in. Uh, neighborhood or in a, a community outreach uh, part of that program, which is uh, literally just trying to cover what they're, um, you know, that it, it's not discrimination that we're reaching out to everyone, but it's literally just Muslims. So um, obviously uh, a lot of us have gotten that, uh, but as far as the impact goes, well, it, it affects you in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, I would say, uh, you know, every way you can think about oh, financially, um, you know, 
when I was on a no-fly list and I was on all, all these other lists, I couldn't travel to places. Uh, I couldn't see family, uh, especially I got married in Afghanistan and I, I came back and then I couldn't go back for, you know, two years, more than two, three years then. Uh, and financially, another way would be, you know, I couldn't go back to, I used to work in the East Coast and I would go back and forth and I couldn't um, take a flight. So I had to take a bus for 30 hours to Connecticut instead of a four or five hour um, uh, airline trip. Uh, so financially, psychologically, and uh, so, you know, mentally has a lot of effect on you. It's uh, uh because what they do is they they uh, they go to all of your friends and family and everyone that you know, and um, so they kind of like corner you, um, and in a way that uh, it it affects you because everyone looks at you differently then, and uh, they use other tactics that that just puts a lot of pressure on you. Um, and 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 socially, uh, I I really don't trust people even till now. I think it changed me a lot. That um, I always presume that, especially since I've been part of this um, case and we sued the FBI and you know other federal agencies and so forth, that um, I would be you know somehow um, um, targeted via informants or different things. And in the past, I have had these shady feelings in the past too. So socially, it, it, it like you kind of distance yourself from everything and everyone. And uh, even the mosques, you know, everyone knows uh, all around the country, the mosques are uh, targeted too, and there are, there are informants there. And so, so it's like that openness is not there anymore. So it affects everything. It affects the whole family, obviously, because the family is worried about you. So um, it has a lot of uh, negative effects, and, and it, 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 it's, it's uh, unfortunate that we are feeling this. And I, I feel Gazelle, and I see Maria, um, you know, I, back in Afghanistan, I have heard stories, and I know people that been targeted specifically without a due trial. And I, I've seen a, a documentary on uh, Kenya where, uh, you know, a lot of the imams in the, 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 have been targeted uh, for no reason, just because they speak and they're Muslims. That's their job. So uh, broad, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a within problem and it goes out in it's even more severe outside. Uh, so uh, that's just part of my story and my perspective on it. Thank you. Thank you, Nadeed. And thank you all, because, you know, I think you all just really highlighted the immense harm that has occurred, um, that is ongoing. Um, and really just, I think oftentimes people think it's just like an individual harm, but the ways in which also this is, directly impacting entire communities is just horrific. Um, so I, this is a question that's open to just start discussion between you all. Um, I'm not going to necessarily pose it to anyone, but how do we make sense of the harms of the past 20 years and what are the ideologies at play? Like what what is the root of all of this if, if you had to explain it in that way? 
Um, I'll go first so I can pick up from when it has left. You know, in terms of just the stigma that comes with it, uh, because we face that even with the communities that we work with, um, we have been seeing a trend. And David has started, like, even the, the, we are seeing not just an evolution in terms of how the operations are being carried out, but also just how the targets are sort of changing. So when the, so it started with the Muslim clerics, you know, the most prominent ones, the ones who are most influential were the youth were abducted or extrajudicially killed. And then now we've come to a place where we can't really tell anymore. It's lawyers, it's academics, it's mostly youth, young men, um, unfortunately. And, and then it's so random, some are returned, some are not. And those that actually are returned, it's the stigma that faces this young man and, and their families is such that it's so difficult to have them integrated back to the you differently. You're no longer just Navid anymore, like your identity is just sorted completely. And given the narrative that is shaped out there uh, by the government, you really just are not in control of your identity anymore. It's not you defining yourself. Um, In terms of the ideologies, I think for Kenya in particular, I'll go back a little bit, like in World War I and World War II, um, around colonization and just, okay, before colonization, it's pre-colonization, because we sort of had like some of our um, servicemen contributing to, uh, you know, World War One and World War Two in terms of just serving uh, with the British or even the Allied forces. And if I quickly come back to uh, post-colonization, so now we are in a in a space where. We're still having our uniformed forces being used by the U.S. government to carry out um, the operations. So, so in that aspect, it really hasn't changed much. We still are living like in a neo-colonial world. So it's it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, and also, I was thinking about criminalization of other. I think that is still right because that's how it starts. You know, once a community is stigmatized or profiled as criminal, then it doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim that prays five times or not, whether you go to the mosque, which is radicalizing or not, it just doesn't matter. You're just a Muslim. And, and also, sadly, like the way the narrative has been shaped here, it's being pit as Islam against Christianity, which I find really, really sad. Like even the you know, at the community level, it's not being seen as, hey, this is a community that's being targeted because of very specific policies around securitization. So given on how the landscape changes or given how even the security aspect shifts, it could be you the next time, yeah? So, um, yes, so those are some of the ideologists yet play and I thought feminism or is it the lack of feminism I don't know because my sense is that given the fear which is at the community level so women who are directly affected if it's your brother 
uh, your father taking your husband. These women just don't want to speak out. And we don't hear the stories in the public space. The fear is just so high that sometimes even me wanting to seek an audience is safety just becomes so, so difficult, you know, and the... And, and, I, and I think generally there's the, the just so much opaqueness around um, women, not just as victims, but also as perpetrators. We don't hear that. And that's why um, young Muslim, Muslim, just being a Muslim man in 2021 is just a risky affair, you know? And I have seen that even, especially here at the coast, um, before September 11, like with such integrated community, like the religious divide was very, very minimal. Or even though it was there, like it wasn't bothering, you know, it wasn't a bother, it wasn't like the center of our lives. But now you find that even some parents get really, really worried if, you know, one of their children or one of their family members say they want to convert to Islam. You know, so it's it's not, it's it's fear, <laughs> you know, why are you converting to Islam? We don't know, you know, you might be targeted, are you being radicalized? So it's like conversion to Islam is not seen as a choice that you can freely make and just live with it because you're attracted to the religion. You know, now it's, your, it's like you're almost setting up yourself for death, you know, which um, it is distorting just the social fabric. Yeah, if I can jump in here too. Um, what Maria especially said, uh, it is very true um, in my case and in a lot of cases that I've known and the people that I know and my friends. Uh, before, uh, there, were, there was a time in my life that I was not really religious in America. And I just lived like everyone else, even though it was post 9-11. And uh, not affected me much. Um, I just lived my normal life. But I knew in my heart I was missing something. And so Allah, you know, guided me back. And then I started to absorb a lot of, uh, you know, if it's the Quran or the Hadith or just listen to a lot of different lectures and stuff. So my heart kind of opened up. And then right then and there, my problem started. You know, my problem started right after that. And, and I saw that there was something there. Okay, so what is the reason? Before I was like that and I had no problem. And now I'm practicing and I have issues. So that, when I, when I gather one, like some of, some of the things together, I put two, two together, I noticed that there's definitely people within the mosque that, uh, that tell these agencies or whatever, they just tag them and then they they obviously go after you and they, you know, they target you. So my, so, but, but the other thing was that um, that kind of gave me, um, personally me, it gave me uh, this, uh, this hope that maybe I have some iman or faith in my heart that, you know, Allah is, because as Muslims, we believe that you have to go through hunger and thirst and all these issues for you just to be purified or just to be tested to see who is the patient one. So I felt that, you know, that maybe there's something within me. Maybe Allah has guided me. So I had patience and I just kept having patience and I asked Allah for patience. Uh, but 
what Maria said is very true. It's it's like um, it would right when you become a little more religious and and you start practicing your religion, uh, you start to get, get having all these issues after that. And that was in my case there, just to uh, say what what I how I um, experienced everything. Yeah, and I think, you know, speaking to ideology, I think that in the U.S. there isn't truly a separation between church and state. And I think, you know, I even knew this as a second grader in school when we had to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance and you said one nation under God. And I always thought, you know, what is this God? Why is there God if there's supposed to be this you know, separation. And I think in 9-11 and previous conflicts as well, you know, they've been waged almost as like a holy war. And um, I think Christian or like interpretations of Christian ideology have been wielded in sometimes over and sometimes subtle ways to really pit Muslims as enemies and to sort of justify like a cleansing or to justify violence. And I think that this is used in combination with, you know, the exploitative framework of capitalism and imperialism, which is very much about profit. And when you combine these two things, I think it's very toxic and dangerous and you know, in the case of Afghanistan and many places where government contractors are making millions of dollars and, you know, governments are making millions of dollars from weapon sales. Um, I think it's just a powerful force <laughs> that's hard for the everyday person in these places to really stand against. Wow, that's also powerful. Um, so we have these systems, these ideologies of capitalism, Islamophobia, imperialism, colonialism, all fueling immense harm um, to communities, not just here in the U.S., but abroad as well. Um, and so I think it would feel good to move our conversation to talk about how do we resist these systems, right? And talk a little more about resistance. Um in the face of so much harm. So generally, how are survivors resisting these realities? How do communities cope, respond, protest? Um, I, I can start with you, Marie, for a little framing, but again, it's very open and, and feel free to, to share what you will. You know, Mahuri was founded really to promote the protection and enjoyment of human rights for all. And in addition to the legal advocacy, you're developing programs that advance community peace building and development, as well as gender parity, um, demarginalization and fairness and equity. So how do post 9-11 laws and policies perpetuate marginalization and inequity and how how does your work support communities in confronting violations of human rights? Thanks, Sama, for that question. So, um, OK, 
Okay, just go back in history a little bit, like to shed more light about the coastal region, like in the context of the larger political landscape. So the coast has historically just been marginalized, yeah. It's uh, historical land injustices, uh, it's the economic injustices, uh, increased sexualization. So some of the policies that uh, in place here, for example, Lamu is one of the counties in the coastal region, had had like a prolonged curfew, I think, for like a year or something, even before the COVID curfew started. Yeah. So, so what these policies are doing post-11 is further exacerbating the marginalization of a community which has already historically been marginalized. So it's pushing the coastal community further into the periphery, you know. So there's been like, okay, I I don't I don't like to say exclusion in political process or minimal participation in political processes, but if you, I'm saying that in the context of if you see how where power lies. Um, and where the region has been historical in terms of politics. So that has also somewhat exacerbated because this is a, a region that has been predominantly on the opposition and largest because um, can the political choices benefit us? If they're not, then we'd rather be on the opposition, yeah? So to complicate that now for September 11th, so what we've tried to, to do is sort of try to fill in the gaps because of where we stand politically, then that means even in terms of development, we are behind, yeah? So if you Google Mombasa, what you will see is like the nice beaches and, you know, but you, you hardly get to see uh, the disadvantaged communities. You don't see the statistics. So you really have to like take that extra layer to see how disadvantaged the community is. So what we have tried to do as Muhuri through interventions is to work and try and address some of the root causes. So we've worked really closely with the religious communities uh, to sort of just foster inter-religious, uh, interfaith dialogue to just have platforms where can we just get to a space where we understand each other's religion beyond the government narrative, you know, understand Islam, understand Christianity, understand Israel, understand Buddhism, understand Rastafari, you know, so that we hopefully we can go back to uh, life before September 11th, if that is even a possibility. And also in the dialogue spaces, we have had a dialogue with state actors to sort of just have these conversations going. You know, this is how some of this um, interventions have affected communities. They know, but part of that is to also um, make our work known as opposed to just being branded as a, the, under the broader umbrella of us supporting terrorism. We also have tried to fill in the economic gaps. So with some of the youths that, because the, the most affected youths come from like lower socioeconomic families. 
So we have tried to have like income generating activities with them. Um, also provide psychosocial support to some of the women that are willing to participate through just um, accompanying them in the journey. Because also those that have chosen to follow the judicial mechanisms, it takes quite a process. It's long and the closure which is needed sometimes uh, doesn't just happen like in a few months. Yeah. So those are some of the key interventions which we have tried to sort of help to build resilience uh, at the community level as we continue to agitate with government over just uh, addressing the gaps in some of the socioeconomic and political and civil rights. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. That's all very, very important work that's happening um, to enable people to resist in different ways within their communities. Um, Gazelle, you stated before that you organize with the Afghan American Artists and Writers Collective, and you all do work to develop exhibits, workshops, and public commentary that disrupts and critically analyzes the mainstream discourse on Afghanistan and the U.S., Um, Can you share more about that crucial work and how creatives respond and resist systems and structures of oppression, violence, and war? Yeah. um, One of the exhibits that we organized at the end of 2019 was called Fragmented Futures, Afghanistan 100 Years Later. And it was an exhibit of Uh, mainly Afghans in the diaspora, but some within Afghanistan to reflect on the last 100 years because it was the anniversary of Afghanistan becoming like its own nation state. Um, And I think that this exhibit was unique in that a lot, first of all, there aren't a lot of exhibits that feature Afghan artists, but those that do often like fall into certain categories. For example, um, maybe just like celebrating traditional crafts, or you might recall, I think the Smithsonian had a traveling exhibit of like gold pieces from Afghanistan. And so I think there, a lot of exhibits don't really critically engage and push back on like existing stereotypes of Afghanistan. So this exhibit was um, unique in that it was really featuring a multiplicity of voices and showing the diversity of what the lived Afghan experience is um, and kind of complicating that story. Um, We also hosted a panel discussion called Beyond Refuge, Migrants Resist Detention, Um, and activists and lawyers discussed how migrants aren't just victims, but they're politically conscious people um, who are resisting the violence of the states in which they live. And we had another panel discussion, Reimagining Queer Futures, Um, and that was discussing how creativity and arts were mobilized by the LGBTQ plus community. Um, So I think that artists, they can use their creative expression to critique systems of power. And because because at least in the context of Afghanistan, and and the U.S. and the stereotypes that are generated, I think that the those unique voices and personal stories really help 
um, tell more complicated stories of what it means to be to be an Afghan and and that there also isn't just one definition of, of being an Afghan. There's a multiplicity of experiences. Yes, I love that complicating the narrative and really um, using art to help people like reimagine the ideas of like what they think of certain things. Um, thank you for that. Um, Naveed, as you reflect on your own journey, uh, what were the sources of strength for you? How did you decide to participate in this case? What did it mean to be connected to and struggling with others who were also challenging the no-fly list and other racist, oppressive post-9-11 policies? Uh, so as I said earlier, the the, uh, the biggest strength comes from... Um, but for me, it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and, um, uh, and it's through prayer and it's through um, having patience. Uh, and uh, obviously my family, because um, they were very much affected by this whole um, uh, story. As far as um, what... I mean, I really, I'm one of those people, I really had no other choice, right? Um, I either file, file up, uh, file in research first and find people that can help me so I can fly or I can see my family. Um, I know certain people that till this day, they didn't get that opportunity there. You know, it's been years that they fell on no pilot. So I had no other choice, right? I I have to research. I have to find people that can help me. And thank God I found CCR, Claire, and uh, you know some of the other uh, law firms that was they were able to and willing to take my story and add me to that um, uh, those plaintiffs, uh, at least the case. Uh, so there was obviously um, that was the only way I had because it's it's like. There's a lot of uh, secrecy with these programs. Uh, so if I if I go to uh, let's say if I go to FBI or other federal agency that hey I didn't do anything right uh, what what can I do to clear my name can you please help me <laughs> they'll tell you oh, sorry we didn't do anything we don't know what you're talking about so you you are stuck in between a rock and a hard place you are cornered. In a way, I'm sorry to say, but in a way to get a reaction from you, to get a reaction in order for for you to react. And that would kind of uh, make that image for the American people in the West, especially uh, that this is that boogeyman that we're talking about. That's why you're giving us the money. This is terrorism. This is this and that. But unfortunately, a lot of these people are are cornered. And even if you corner a cat, a little nice soft kitten, it will react. So a human being will always react, you know, and there will always be a reaction to your actions. So, um, but, you know, obviously uh, we, we, we have to be smarter than that, right? We don't want to play their game. So um, uh, I had no choice. And then obviously um, I had motivation too. I, I really didn't care anymore. I, because, you know, in a way they kind of ruined my life anyways. And, uh, uh, personally, I'm one of those people that I, I will rebel against it regardless. I, I really don't care if I can help other people. I will, um, 
stand up and uh, obviously seeing other brothers through this and seeing a lot of people that were affected by it. So then I knew that uh, obviously this is the right struggle. It's a a struggle for the truth and it's a struggle for uh, basic human dignity. And that that's what motivated me to um, to stand up and to to resist and um, and it's such a good cause. I, I will continue to do this. You know, regardless, I'm not on a no fly list right now, but you know the the effects are there. I would rather have you know help people that go through this before they can go through it and they experience it and not experience what I experienced. Uh, so that that's what that's what my motivation is and it's just uh as a muslim we always should struggle for the truth and for the for the haq and so um i i plan on doing that regardless if it's affecting muslims or non-muslims innocent people that's all it is you know we should stand up and we should always come together uh in order to uh fight these menaces in society thank you thank you naveed and yes there's those words are so powerful because it's so important, you know, that despite the harms that have been caused, that people have a reason to continue fighting against these systems um, and to look forward to the future, right? And so I think that's a great space for us to move our discussion into next is really talking about the future. So where do we go from here? Um what does accountability look like and how can we imagine repair for the harms that have been caused and continue um, to impact various communities? So, Maria, I'm going to go back to you. And again, it's very open. Um, don't have to answer this question you know, specifically, but just thinking about the future. Um, we've been talking a lot about transparency in our work together. And as we think about accountability and try to imagine repair, can you share about Mahari's quest for truth and what, um, why that is so necessary as a starting point? Yeah, some I think I think Navid just by his sharing by his experience somewhat just answers that question why it's necessary to do what we are doing and why we have to keep doing. Yeah. And uh, for Muhuri in particular, aside from what I shared uh, earlier around what we do at the community level is to push the judicial mechanism. Also, uh, we file habeas corpus cases for the this will have a corpus basically, you know, produce the person dead or alive. And part of that is to just help um, the family that have directly affected to, to get closure if that if it's even a possibility. And Navid mentioned something which also I had had recently from our father of one of the victims that we are um, whose case we are handling, um, Yasir Mahmoud, and his dad uh, used exactly the same word that Navid has used. You know, um, if a cat is cornered, you know, they turn into a tiger. Basically, that's what it said. You know, and I do agree. Uh, at some point, human beings just have to resist. You know, and the resistance, unfortunately, may not necessarily break the cycle of violence. We may just continue to perpetuate the cycle of violence. Yeah. 
Yeah, so just coming back to, uh, so, so the, the judicial mechanism is there to help to find closure. And also there has never been remedy in case of mistaken identity. So um, it's, so that's the end game. Can we have the government, uh, whether the US government or the Kenyan government of appropriate remedy where there has been mistaken identity? Yeah, we we are actively working one of the cases, Omar Faraj, uh, he was a butcher, and even Yasir was like an ambulance driver, you know. So, it's not good to find closure. I, I don't know. Well, I, I say it, but I, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if on a personal individual level that there's going to be closure. You're not doing like your final rights. You didn't get to say goodbye. You get. So so even when we, we go to court, we'll push the policies. We'll put the judicial mechanism. Perhaps the government might be more human rights sensitive when it comes to counterterrorism efforts, but I just don't know if it actually heals the wounds. Yeah, and that's one of the dilemmas I go to bed with every night, like, am I really getting that change on, you know, forget the law, forget the structures, on just healing the wounds on a human level? I, I, I don't know if I'll find the answer in my lifetime, but also we use the media a lot um, as a strategy, and it's just to raise public awareness around what is happening and why the public needs to care. So it's to shape it also as a national conversation, as a global conversation. It's not just happening to the Muslims in the coastal region, it's just Muslims everywhere in the world. You know, and hopefully then with that, we can have um, more allies coming to the space, you know, just around holding governments accountable to their human rights violations because of the terrorism operations. Yeah. Ooh, yes, Marie. And I think that's a question so many people struggle with, right? When there has been so much immense harm and ongoing harm, can accountability and healing, you know, even with transparency and truth, can it really happen? Um, it's, it's a really difficult question, but it's important that people keep trying to answer that question. Um, Gazelle, we know that since the 2021 crisis in Afghanistan, you've been thrown into a new aspect of this work um, in supporting the evacuation of Afghan artists. So for you and your comrades, fellow artists, your family, um, what would accountability and justice require going forward? I think that's a really hard question. And I think Marie's mentioning of healing, you know, makes that question harder because I think about like, like if the U.S. actually acknowledged the harm that they've done, I do feel like that would be a step, but, but would that create healing? I don't know. Maybe it would be a step towards healing. Um, um, and I don't like, how do you, how do you achieve justice? Like even in the case of Naveed's story, you know, the fact that 
your life has been changed forever, despite, you know, whether you're on a no-fly list or not. Um, and the, the broken trust, I mean, I don't, I don't know what justice looks like for individuals, but I will say at least like in a systemic level, I think that it really angers me that the U S goes into countries like Afghanistan, messes everything up. And then they don't want to let those people into their borders. They make everything so complicated. Like this whole experience has given me this inside look in our immigration system, which I knew was problematic, but now I see it. And it's just like, I think it's just smoke and mirrors. It's all this bureaucracy for humanitarian parole. They have to pay $575 per family member just to file an application. And there's been so many applications filed for Afghans that it's estimated the the government, the US government has around like $19 million from those application fees. And meanwhile, we find out there's only like six, six staff members actually looking at these humanitarian parole applications. And it's just a lack of transparency in the the immigration process, like first, first it was like, okay, we have a civ visa, special immigrant visa for people who worked with U.S. NGOs, and then they introduced a P2 visa, um, which, or maybe civ was for government and P2 was for NGOs, um, and then, and then after that, we heard, oh, actually, it's going to take a really long time for those to process. So hurry up, hurry up, and file these humanitarian parole applications, which we did. We scrambled to fundraise and collect all the documents, the signatures, the photos from Afghans who are just using a phone because they don't have consistent electricity. Um, they don't. They have to. They're not sure when or how they can buy phone credits. Like they're living in a crisis situation and their lives are at risk and these systems ask so much of them. And how could they even do this without the aid of like an American or someone else? There's scholarship applications for artists. They were asking for four letters of recommendation. If me and other people weren't helping this artist, how would they do that? They can't do it. I just feel like it's it's a game. It's like, oh, we care. But no, we don't. <laughs> we just want to look like we care. And so I think, honestly, like I would just prefer for the U.S. to say exactly what's going to happen. I would prefer that. I would prefer they just said, look, we're not going to process any of these applications. We're not going to accept any Afghans. Move on with your life or like use the application money and give it to the Afghans, you know, for their livelihoods because they're all in limbo. They're living in limbo. And it's, I think as Naveed said, it's like also about human dignity. And there's this, um, I don't know, they've like created this priority system of like what kind of life matters. Like you have an opportunity if you worked for US government or military, or you have an opportunity if you work for an NGO, and, you know, and you have access if you speak English and have some connection with a foreigner. But what about the the illiterate people? What about the 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 widow who's blind in one eye? You know, like, do they do they get 
that opportunity? Like, why don't their lives matter? And also, why can't any of those people, why can't they have a chance to like live in their own country peacefully? You know, because there is sort of this illusion on both sides of like, oh, come to America and everything will be better. And it's not necessarily that case. And also, like, why can't they just live in their own countries peacefully? It just, I don't know. I don't know if I really answered your question of justice. <laughs> but it, your question brought all of those those issues to mind. No, I appreciate all of that because you're right. It's a difficult question. It's one that I don't think anyone has a real answer to. But I really appreciated how you ended on this idea of actually maybe accountability or repair looks like people being able to just live in their countries peacefully, not being forced to migrate because of crises that are created by the U.S. You know, like, what does that mean and how do we create a world where that's actually possible? Um, So I really, really appreciated that. Um, Naveed, I, I want to move on to you. And, you know, we could say that when the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in our favor um, last December, we won, right? We won the case. But of course, there's still so much left to do. So what about that victory? Should we celebrate? But how how must we work to continue pushing against these harms? So um, the Supreme Court win was definitely a right step, but it's not the answer because it was resisting or it was going against the federal government's or at least the agency's uh, ways of doing things. It's not going to change policy. It's not going to change everything, right? We're still going to be affected by it Unless, unless agencies come together and say, you know what? These things are wrong. We shouldn't do them. But I'm sorry, I'm pessimistic when it comes to that. Um, I I can't, I can't, I'm sorry, but I can't tell you as much, uh, you know, what the two sisters said. Uh, we have to have really drastic changes for healing to occur. Uh, both within here and internationally. As long as what Gazelle earlier said, we have uh, religious fanatics, um, and I'm sorry to say, but on on the Christian side, and you have the military industrial complex, and you have profit and these two ideologies coming together. Uh, It's gonna, collide and it's going to create problems. When this especially comes together on the Islamic side, you're going to have these reactions. And I'm sorry to say, but this is just going to go back and forth, back and forth. And it's going to take as much time as uh, we believe that Allah wills it to be. And there's wisdom in it, obviously, but uh, there's, there's the suffering is just going to keep continuing. Uh, and I really don't have an answer I could just say that everywhere that we go, as as long as what we could see and what we experience, everywhere the U.S. or the West goes, let's say Somalia, let's say Yemen, let's say uh, Libya, let's say Afghanistan, Iraq, Iraq, you know, it's a mess. It's a mess. And you have all these groups that are created there now 
and they're spreading all across the world now. Okay. So this boogeyman that you have, this whole thing of war and terror and stuff, it's everywhere now. And so if it was intentionally or unintentionally, you cannot put it down now. So it is, it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing. And, and I don't see anything on the government side here that really say, you know what? We have done this wrong and we're going to change course, right? No one is doing that. None of the governments are doing that. They keep continuing to, they, 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 they keep going with the same policies and actually they become more extreme. So I don't see anything but just these clashes. And I'm sorry to say, but I, I hope drastic changes are made or they occur. But what we can do is reach out to each other and obviously uh, have this human bond with each other. If it's within Muslims or across um, to other with other religious communities, but as far as the people in charge of the bureaucracies and in the the corporations, uh, to them it's uh, this is going to keep continuing till till uh, till it it's not, and I don't have an answer for it. I um, I as far as I know, we just keep fighting and if it comes in our lifetime or if it's not but this is part of uh, human nature too we've always had bad people and good people so this struggle will continue and uh, uh, we will see I think uh, the truth will always come on top um, and but it takes time and it will always take time so uh, I know my answer is not <laughs> it's just that's that's what we see, and I'm sorry, but it's it's a clash, and it will continue until it doesn't. No, no need to be sorry. There's so much truth in everything that you stated, that all of you stated, because it's a difficult question, <laughs> um, and it's one that we're all working towards, you know, figuring out and trying to figure out what repair looks like, you know, um, and and really how do we move forward after so much harm. I really wanted to touch on something you highlighted, Naveed, which is the global nature right, of this harm and the global nature of everything that's been done and the need for systematic change in order for us to move forward. What does this global, the global impact of um, these ideologies, policies, um, what does it tell us about the need for global solidarity? Um, and I'm not posing this again to anyone. It's just open. And I hope we can just have a discussion to sort of close to talk about the need for global solidarity in order to um, deal with a lot of these issues. Yeah, I can start, but I'm, I will answer the question like towards the end. But when Navid and Gazelle was, was speaking, sort of just reminded me of my experience when I was doing um, humanitarianism. I worked with Somali refugees. I mean, they are the predominant one in Africa. And all of the lamentations that Gazelle had is, those are also my complex, you know. Um, and the U.S., is the country that resettles most of the refugees. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's paradoxical. I mean, I agree with you guys. Like, basically, I, I resonate with everything that you said, because it's that. Like, even the Somalis would get resettled um, sometimes, like, when they get their passport, they just want out of America. You know, they just want to come back and just live in Kenya, you know, so... 
Yeah, and the U.S. doesn't rebuild. I mean, all, all of the countries that Naveed has mentioned, we sort of just go in, have the military intervention. There's no thought about just rebuilding, um, you know, um, these communities or the country, you know, so it just leaves these gaps that, um, you know, have all of these insurgents groups just coming up and taking over, yeah. Um, yeah, and capitalism. I don't know if we are ever going to, <laughs> you know, to like break ourselves free of capitalism because it, it's that it's the driver. Like war is just the most profitable business uh, in 2021 right now, and, and that's where governments are going. And even when you look at the intervention in Somalia with Amazon, some of the countries which were not even involved, you know, have like a lot of uh, of the troops in there just because they're getting money out of it, you know. So again, like Navid said, I don't know if you're going to find answers to some of these questions today, but I liked what he said and that's where I want to close. You know, at some point he talked about, you know, given how um, you know, the web that these countries just work in around counterterrorism, the renditions are just multiple countries. So if states can organize like that, I think then as activists, we need to organize like that also. And, and I like this conversation, which we just started, and even with the foyer, it's that can we just use the same strategy that governments are using? We, we may not have their resources, but we can still come together, share strategies, information, you know, just collaborating ways which we can in our own spaces. Because I feel sometimes that, um, and I don't know what your experience is, but my sense is sometimes a part of the lack of cohesion with civil societies. We feel like we already are on the good side of history. So we don't feel like we need to organize better or be more strategic. But our opponents are really, really organized. Like the anti-rights movement is just so organized to levels. They infiltrate all of the spaces which we don't have, you know, a lot of influence over, you know, and that's why governments do what they do. So 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 I think we we need to do that. We need to come together more often at a global level, particularly when it comes to counterterrorism, because it's not just happening with a specific jurisprudence, it's cutting across borders. So we need to speak to each other more. Yeah. I really like what Marie said about organizing across borders and maybe learning from other systems on how to better organize I think that despite, you know, a lot of the negative things I talked about, one silver lining of this experience of, of helping Afghans recently is that I've been able to see what's possible when community comes together. Um, AWA is not like a development organization or a humanitarian organization. We're all volunteers. I'm just an artist and not one with like you know, some high status that I can like call on famous people or rich people. But it's been amazing that we have been able to evacuate artists. And it's really come from sharing resources and asking help from ordinary people. It's all been the work of ordinary people who've stepped forward 
and been able to give what they can. Um, and it's that collective effort that's been able to make things happen, which is um, really inspiring. And I think that it's a reminder of that we actually do have a lot of power. I think it's easy to get very negative about systems and and I think, you know, it's it's at the it's in the interest of the government and and the media is a part of this in and making us think that we don't have power. Um, but government is a group of people. We as individuals or activists, we're a group of people and and we can do we can do a lot. Um, I will also say that this has been a time of like unprecedented organizing among the Afghan diaspora. Um, a lot of groups have been coming together. Um, and I would say in the past, there hasn't been a lot of organization in the Afghan diaspora. So that's also been really great to see. And I hope that this time is kind of creating a framework. You know, people have been organizing in response to a crisis, but I'm hoping that that will create a framework for um, continued efforts to change policy um, and impact lives. Um, yeah, so just to go back to what uh, your sister said, um, obviously organizing and obviously um, reaching out to different communities and um, talking to each other just on a human level, you know, sharing our experiences with people. Uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings uh, in in the U.S. and I'm sure it's in the world too, regarding Muslims and uh, the Islamic faith and everything. But once you sit down with people, you experience, you, you give them, you literally explain to them, you show them. You know, when my mom cooked uh, food, she gives it to a few houses on this side and that side and that side. And I think you know that's just. It just shows that, you know, people don't do that here anymore. So these people are caring. They're not bad. They're not, you know, they're not uh, here to hurt us or there's just a miscommunication. And that is created most by these governments, too. So just on a human level, we have to uh, show respect that we have to be more caring. And, uh, uh, you know, so so that's some of the things that I personally do and uh, obviously organizing as Marie said that, you know, if we could, I wish that we could like even internationally, all these communities that are um, affected, uh, you know, look, look at the community, especially like in China, right? The Muslim community there, uh, the Rohingyas um, in Burma. Uh, so a lot of these communities are affected, but you know, how much voice do we have for that? And uh, how much uh, how much voice do they have in the media, in the West especially? Because uh, government's always going to look at their own national security, strategic alliances, well, you know, so whatever it is, they're not going to look into what, um, what, how the people feel or, you know, really about human rights or anything. So I know my, my explanation is very broad, but uh, the more that we do, especially from, you know, a neighborhood and from a, uh, that uh, we take that approach to it, and then slowly and obviously, if we're more organized, we can always do more. Um, so that's uh, m my thought about this whole thing. Is 
Amazing. Thank you so much. Yes, to community care, um, community organizing, um, but also really appreciated this space of thinking about global solidarity in which we learn from each other, from different communities in various countries who are dealing with similar issues and think about how collectively um, we can fight against government oppression. So, Gazelle, Marie, Navid, I am so grateful for this conversation we just had. Um, thank you all for sharing your stories and attempting, <laughs> although I, I don't think we, we got all the answers, which is completely fine, but attempting to imagine a world prepared, right, from so much harm that has been done and that is ongoing and to center the stories of survival while also recognizing that many people didn't survive, right? Um, and many people will not survive these various systems of oppression that continue to mainly target Muslim communities around the world. So I'm internally grateful for our conversation. I'm grateful for your wisdom um, and everything that you can share today. To our audience, thank you so much for joining. Um, thank you to Haymarket Books for hosting this important series. And be sure to join us for part four of the series in a few weeks. Thanks thank for you listening. So if you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.